MSW Media. Hi, this is Harry Lennox from The Blacklist, and you're listening to the five-time keg stand champ of Northeast Philadelphia, Dan Dunn. Sit for a spill, it's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I'm Dan Dunn, and coming up, we got a very exciting one today. Greg Brewer is going to be joining us, winemaker Greg Brewer of Brewer Clifton Winery in Santa Rita Hills. That's here in California. Greg's an amazing winemaker. In fact, he is the reigning winemaker of the year, Wine Enthusiast Magazine. That's a big deal. You're going to want to listen to that. He is going to lay all kinds of wine knowledge on us a little bit later in the show. But first, I want to... We're not going to be drinking at first, but I want to talk about something that definitely drives me to drink, online dating. That's right. I've, it's something I've been dabbling in. I know we're in a pandemic, so you got to be really careful, but, you know, a man has needs. So I have been dabbling in the online dating world, and I got to tell you, it's something. But I don't want to just tell you myself, so I, I felt like I needed to have a conversation about this. So I want to introduce our new Chief Southern correspondent, sub-dating correspondent, but her main title on the show is Chief Southern Correspondent. She's the best. Welcome, Ashley McHugh. Ashley, how are you? I'm great. How are you? It's good to see you. Where are you coming to us from, Chief Southern Correspondent? Live from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Oh, that's Southern. That's that's about as Southern as it gets. I mean, listen, Chattanooga is home to the Chattanooga Choo Choo, right? So... Whistling Dixie, all that stuff, right? We're okay. Right here. So, how do you feel about being the new chief Southern correspondent for what we're drinking? I think it's perfect. Obviously, right? I mean, I'm just a sweet Southern belle that should be the, you know, the chief correspondent for dating here in the South. Well, in da- dating and drinking. This is a drinking show, but yeah. But right. for this segment, again, we're, go hand in hand. Yeah, it does. Um, okay, so. Dating apps. I've been on the Bumble. I believe you've been on it as well. I've also tried Hinge. I don't like Hinge as much. I think Bumble is a little more action going on on Bumble. Would you agree? I would agree. Although I have made good friends off of Hinge. This was, I think, a an incarnation a little while ago. Okay. So it used to be where you know it was a friend of a friend. I don't know if it's like that right at this minute. They've opened it up with the pandemic. But yeah, I've actually made some some great friends. I had a great date off of Hinge where I played Pie Face. Pie Face. Go ahead. It's a game. Have you ever played it before? I don't know. Is this uh, no. is this about to get is this about to get really kinky? Because <laughs> it sounds like it is. All right, tell me about I, Pie Face. I had a lovely date with a a lovely Frenchman, um, actually in your neck of the woods, and we played Pie Face. It's a board game where you you know, put Cool Whip 
on a hand. It's actually meant for like eight-year-olds, but you know, it's probably a pretty perfect dating, um, first date dating. Yeah. My mind went somewhere else when you mentioned pie face, but we won't go there now. I I guess if you're going to start anywhere on the dating apps, I think the place to begin is with the cliches. Okay. There are so many fucking cliches in dating profiles and I wanted to touch on a couple of them and, and you know, the, the big one, I think I see more than any is I'm new to this. So here goes, you know, and the translation is I'm super insecure. Do, 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 that's, I see that a lot on women's profiles. Do you get that on men's profiles? I'm new to this. And what are they saying? If it's new, it means that they're probably still married or if they just have one picture, you just want to swipe left because they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, come on, you know. The one picture thing is funny because I, uh, I I call those the no info no info profile. You'll get these people that just have like one or two pictures and there's nothing about nothing about me. And I'm I'm, I'm like, are these incredibly narcissistic people or are they in the witness protection program yet they still want to date? How am I supposed to know who they are if they're not giving me anything? Oh no, definitely the WPP for sure. Um, yeah, they are. Um those are, those are swipe lefts. They are either ex-girlfriends or wives seeing if somebody's out there fooling around or definitely somebody that, that you don't want to create a real relationship with. I got you. All right. How about this one? Another cliche that I get a lot is I see a lot is I love laughing or I'm a glass half full kind of person, or I try to see the best in every situation. And when I, I go like, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, what am I supposed to write and go, hey, uh, I see you love laughing. How amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what do you do with that? What do you do with it? You know, a friend of mine helped me write mine during one of the incarnations. And it was just like you as a writer. Show, don't tell. Right? Great. Great. That's a great, because you get a lot of that, right? Another way they do it is they'll say like, my friends say I'm, and then they follow it by a list of adjectives. And it's like, okay, first off, I don't know your friends. Uh, what are they? They could be terrible judges of character. They could be serial killers. But secondly, right? Like, how about a little self-confidence? Hey, my friends say I'm funny. Don't tell me you're witty. Show me you're witty. Don't show me you have boobs. Show me your boobs, right? You know, right. Just if you got it, flaunt it. Grandmother always said, if you got it, flaunt it. Little powder, little paint. Make it look like what you ain't. <laughs> that brings me to filters. What is the deal with filters, Dan? Oh, the filter. So the filter. For, okay. You're 38 fucking years old. I'm looking at, not you. I'm saying I'm, you're 38 years old. Why is there a make-believe wreath of butterflies on your head? What are you doing? What? Are, where are you in your life that this is happening right now? No, it's what is that was the never ending story, the girl with the princess thing around her and she's like, Betrayo. I mean, seriously, no. Do guys no. do guys do that? Yeah, guys will smooth out their face and you're like, No, that's not you. Like unless you've spent, you know, the last three months in quarantine getting a facelift, which maybe Look at me. But, this is how I yeah. date. You look gorgeous. Look at you right now. Look at me. I look I I mentioned serial kill. I look like a serial killer. Butterflies but on my face. I'm right okay now? with it. Yeah, no butterflies. See, <laughs> you're right. It's a it's a good it's a very good point. Take the goddamn fil- I mean, if you're 21, I guess, okay, but get rid of the if you're over the age of 30, no more filters. Get rid of the filters. They gotta go. The other one that's gotta go is the I they call it the sugar daddy profile. They the key word there is always a gentleman. I'm looking for a gentleman who knows how to treat a lady. 
And then they also make mentions about things they want bought for them and blah, blah. And they're always in some designer outfits. And the, for I live in LA, so then it's invariably their location is Beverly Hills. And you're like, oh, I, I think I know what's going on here. Huh? Are there any shady things on the guy when you're looking for men on Bumble? You know, it's it's similar but different when they put pictures of themselves in private planes. They're sitting there with their, you know, picture no, of a private no. plane. Really? They're just getting off of the private plane. And I'm like, come on, you know what? No. No, no, no. Or if they're like, you know, Global Alliance and they have to have their picture getting off of the plane. Great. You know, you're a big deal. Do you need a T-shirt too? They might as well just wear a T-shirt that says I'm a big deal so we can see what kind of, pardon me, a, a little bit douchey. I call that a little bit douchey. Yeah, that goes in with like, you get a lot of that profile too, which is the, you know, my life is awesome. And I just need someone to share it with. And then they, it's accompanied by like a full description of, you know, a high powered achievement filled cosmopolitan life that they're living. And what I think what they're trying to say is, you know, I'm not desperate. I'm not needy. I'm not lonely. I'm extremely happy. I'm living my a full and wonderful life, but my already rich life would be enhanced with you in it. And of course, we know that what they're really saying is the exact opposite, right? Well, and here's the opposite to that, at least on men's profiles. They love to show themselves like really in their element. That usually involves fish. Fish the band or fishing? No. Oh, no, no, no. We're fish. They love every other profile, Dan. They have a fish. All right. Are you supposed to be a hunter gatherer? You can go catch me a fish. They've caught a fish, you're saying. And this is it. This is a, they're trying to lure you in, forgive me there, with the fish picture. Yeah. No, they love it. They absolutely love a fish picture. Have you ever responded? Have you ever swiped right on a guy with a fish picture? You know, not unless I'm like, ooh, that looks like some good sushi. You know, no, <laughs> no. I swipe left. Fish pictures, swipe left. Um, private airplanes, swipe left. You know, just be real. How about shirtless? There's a lot of guys go shirtless, right? Isn't that a big thing on guys' profiles? You know, some do, yeah. And yeah. If they're like super six packy, you know, you appreciate it and you, you might look at it for a second, but you also know that let's be real here. I'm looking for something real. I'm wanting to have fun. And if they have a total six pack, they're going to be more focused on keto than they are on me. And that's a no go. Swipe left. Another one I see a lot on women's profiles is they'll do the, the double, the dual thing. They'll say, I like going out. And then also in the same profile, I like staying in. Now it's admirable. I think that they want to cover all the bases, but come on. Which one is it? We going out, we staying in. You know, they're trying to be marriage material, maybe, right? The She can be everything. She's, you know, maybe, pardon me, but the Madonna and the whore. I don't know, a little bit of both. Trying to tap into some psychology there. But just like with the men with their hunter-gatherers and their fish, you know, you don't see a lot of big killers these days. You're not seeing the the hunter-killers with their deer and, and things like that. But Even in the South where you live? You know, surprisingly, I haven't. Maybe, I, I don't know if it's hunting season. I should know that. You're not really going to see that here in Los Angeles. No, you know, no. You're going to no. see a lot of like, my script is in development or, you know, I've got a couple projects in turnaround. Nobody no. holding up a, you know, a, a, an eight point buck or something like that here, you know, that they just slaughtered. One of the, you know, I guess what we're talking about generally is that so many of them are just boring and they don't show any creativity because I think it's just broad. Another one you'll get is I like to stay in with a glass of wine and, and watch a movie. You know, that's the variant on I like cozying up in front of the fire, which is that love actually bullshit that makes me nuts. It's it. They're linking it with intimacy, 
but they just don't have enough imagination, right? Like to come up, like, tell me something specific that you, who doesn't want to fucking drink a glass of wine and watch a movie, right? I, I need more. I need more. Well, that's the thing is don't be basic. I mean, it's, I appreciate somebody being real, but don't be basic. That's, we want to find somebody that's unique, right? I mean, you're super unique. You want to like show that off. Let's show off our best qualities. But we also don't want to have a neon sign above us, you know, saying, oh, look at me, how awesome awesome I am. I am. I can't talk right now. But no, we've just got to be real. Now, the flip side of that is the one that goes, I don't watch television. And that translation, you know, I think I'm fucking better than you. I think I'm better than everyone. Do you, ever, do you get that? I don't know if you get that as much with guys, but there's a lot of women that will say, I don't watch television. I don't do social media. And, and that also brings me to sort of the other profile that I'll see, which is surprisingly, I see this a lot, which is the full negative profile where they, instead of telling you about them and why you would want to date them, they just have a list of all this shit. They, I know this, know this. I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't want this. And I'm going, your profile, like your profile shouldn't be the place to vent, right? You're trying (laughs) to find someone you like, like stop telling me all the things you don't like about human beings and tell me who you are and why I should like you. Absolutely. I mean, you don't want to have a first impression of just being a total Debbie Downer. You know, you've got to, I mean, we want to be sweet. We want to be fun. Like, look, what are you looking for? I mean, do you have a couple top three things that you're looking for? Uh, not, re- I mean, no. I, and there are certain things that are disqualifying f- for me when I go through and in, in these, obviously in these polls, you know, the biggest one would be on Bumble, for instance. And I hate that you have to pick one. You know, you don't have to, but they'll Politically, they'll say conserv- you have the options. They're conservative, moderate, and liberal. And I don't like any of those labels, but I will say if someone has conservative, I'm going to swipe left because we're not going to hit it off. But I also don't like the fact that I, I've got to be put in that box as well. I, I, like I was thinking, what if they changed it to like reasonable versus unreasonable, rational versus irrational, yeah, sane versus insane? And I, maybe that's just a product of the era that we're living in, and maybe they'll do away with that. But that's a disqualifier for me. I notice a lot with women, the big one seems to be height. They'll tell you, is that one yeah. for you? Do you use? Do you- well, I do have, yeah, I do have a height limit. Um, I mean, listen, I'm really short. I'm five foot three and maybe five foot three and a half on a good day. So, you know, I would like a guy that's taller than five seven. But is there too tall? No, I don't think so. No, I don't have two tall. I'm 5'10", by the way. It's bad. Let me tell you another thing that I don't like is they like to say, not my kid. So they'll be having like all cozy arms around some cute little kid. Not my kid. My nephew. Um, I'm the greatest uncle. There's just this kind of, I'm a mom, right? I'm a mom to a six-year-old. So this not my kid thing, it's like, all right, so are you good with kids? Are you afraid of kids? I mean, what's not my kid? That just seems kind of weird to say. And I see it a lot. Not my kid and fish. And fish. I get women that say uh, assholes need not apply. Really? They say, duh, you know, are you kind of inviting trouble there? I think when I see that, I almost want to be an asshole. I kind of go, yeah, (laughs) let me see if I can infiltrate this fortress of, 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 you know, insecurity. And then you get the acronym Queens. I get it. LTR with long-term relationship. MM is marriage minded, but then you'll get ones where it's just all acronyms. And I, my first thought is like, 
Look, if you can't be bothered to type out two words, how, how much can I really expect you to give in a relationship? Absolutely. No. I mean, I think a lot of times they do that because of the character count and they want to get as much as possible out about themselves. So they'll use little emojis and, you know, characters. But I mean, write, write it out, write a couple things out, be creative in your description. I really, if you don't have a description, I'll swipe left. You've got to have something. something. I mean, just tell me. And you know what I think? And I don't know if women do this. I'd love to know. Men tell you all about their jobs, right? They tell you who they are, what they do. Do women talk about their jobs? On Not Rumble? generally, no. I mean, you will, women will say, you know, they're, they're independent, successful, they own their own business, but they don't tend to go on about it too much. Guys do. Yeah, I mean, you'll have definitely, you know, what they, how they experience their job. I mean, hard worker and sometimes you'll see own, you know, own their own house and just some things that maybe are, is a little bit TMI on that app. I, I, I can't really gauge why they're putting that, but it seems like their value is in um, what they do and what they own. Oh, cars, right? Oh, that's another one, Dan. That's not a big thing with women profiles. No, they love to pose in front of their cars. They love to show us what kind of cars they have and it can be anything. It can be, you know, super fancy to, you know, a nice um, purple Honda. They like to pose in front of their cars. There's certain things on profiles that give away that maybe they're not being completely honest with themselves. So for instance, I'll see a lot of profiles where they'll say, you know, I enjoy, and they'll just list all these acts, working out, yoga, this, this, this. And I, at the risk of being mean, I'm looking at the profile going, I don't think you enjoy it as much as you think you do. Sorry. <laughs> What's that mean? That's so mean. I'm a dick. I understand. I'm an asshole. I get it. And it's just COVID-10. That's that's where they were before COVID. It's just the COVID-10. It's the COVID. Okay. So we'll leave it at this since this is a drinking show. This is what we're drinking. One of the other things on Bumble is they they give you an option about how much you drink. And and I would say 99% of the profiles I see where they, they do drink, they list socially as how they drink. It's socially is an option. Every once in a while, you'll see frequently, which is an immediate swipe right for me because I'm like, that person's fun. But what's funny about that is- I didn't even know that was an option. Oh yeah, it'll say socially, frequently. But what I found in the dates- Every day when I wake up, is that an option? What is it? Every day when I wake up? Every Yeah, exactly. But what I found on the times that I have actually gone on dates is that- uh, they should have the option going, I'm getting fucked up, you know, because you go out and I think maybe a lot of that's COVID. You know, if you, if you're going out to meet someone, I think there's a certain amount of nerves going on now with COVID and all this. And also just like the uncertainty of how the dating process could possibly play out in this environment. And there's not a lot to do either. So it's like, we're going to go meet in a park. I'll bring six bottles of wine and we'll finish all of them, you know, and that's, What's that? So what, what would you list under your Bumble? Are you uh, socially, that was what you would put socially? No, socially, but absolutely. I mean, every single, you know, date that I've been on has definitely involved probably too much wine and beer because right to your point, I mean, we are so excited to be out and talking with a human face to face. If we've gotten so lucky in the last little bit to do that, and I think it's just absolutely taking advantage of the moment, right? You're just so happy to be enjoying life with another human being. I'm, I kind of feel like we've just been crawling out of our caves, you know, oh, wait, oh, my gosh, there's like life out there, which 
definitely feels good. Might not feel so good the next day, but. When I personally see someone who says they never drink a profile because of the nature of what I do and my lifestyle, it's not that I'm judging, but I generally tend to swipe left because I just think there's no way, right? There's no way we're going to be able to jibe. And I don't want to get into whether they're not drinking because they had a problem or whatever, but I just, what about you? Is that, is that, would you date a guy that doesn't drink at all? You know, I have in the past, I have gone out with them and I've enjoyed those moments of clarity because you definitely go, whatever they just said to me, either they're a total liar, a sociopath, or they're telling me the truth for better or for worse. Um, So I'm going to take some positives from that. But long term, no, I enjoy my wine. I enjoy, you know, having drinks. I'm from Kentucky. I don't know, you know, bourbon like you, but I I enjoy it. Absolutely. I want to go out and have some fun. Amen to that. Well, I'm I want I'm very excited to welcome uh, our new chief Southern correspondent Ash McHugh to the team. And today's uh, conversation, Ash, is exactly why we chose you because you're 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 spot on. And we haven't even done a drinking segment yet with you. And a little side note: um, before, when I was teething, because I'm from the South, I had whiskey in my mouth before any other liquid. My parents just rubbed it on my gums, as every good Southern parent does. Maybe that's the segment we do next. Yes, so. <laughs> Ash, where can people, do you want people to find you on social media or no? Miss Ash McHugh. Miss Ash McHugh. And we'll be right back. We're going to take a sponsor. Please listen to our sponsors. They're keeping us in business. And then we're going to be back with wine enthusiasts, reigning winemaker of the year, Greg Brewer. Ash, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Folks, I've never admitted this on the show before, but I'm a guy. Yeah, it's true. And as a guy... I'm here to tell you that so much of our identity is wrapped up in our hair. That's why when we get into our 20s and 30s and start noticing the first signs of hair loss, it definitely feels like panic time. Thankfully, now there's Keeps, the simple and easy way to keep your hair. Treatments start at just $10 per month. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free. That's right, free. Go to keeps.com slash drinking to receive your first month of treatment for free. Take care of your hair and your hair will take care of you. Joining me now is the co-founder and winemaker of Brewer Clifton. And he is the reigning winemaker of the year as anointed by Wine Enthusiast Magazine. And that is an august publication. I will say that. Winemaker of the year for Wine Enthusiast is quite the achievement, and we're lucky to have him on the show. Please welcome Greg Brewer. Greg, how are you, man? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a privilege to join you. I'm stoked. You will see about that by the end. You'll be like, "What the? What, the, <laughs> what did I do? What did I do?" Oh man, the, the really the pleasure's all mine here, man. The uh, I've got a glass. Do you have a glass of wine? I don't know if you have any. I've got a little tea, but yeah, I can certainly make wine happen in a. Well, in no, a- no, it's if your tea's good, I'll, I'll I'll do the drinking air tonight. This a little is, Zen mist. <laughs> this is the 2016 Machado, awesome. and I I had a little bit before I came on the air, and I got to tell you, it's you know I'm a fan of the wine. I've been a fan of your wines for a while, and I was really happy when you got that. Uh, I, we hadn't met before, but I knew of you. We have mutual friends. And uh, I was really pleased to see that you got the award and well-deserved. So tell us about that. What I mean, that's a, it is a really big deal. How did you find out? Well, it's so funny, Dan. Like I, um, I got notice um, one of um, someone from our um, kind of 
you know, brand management PR team, um, she called me and said, oh my gosh, like, I, I, I'm so excited. I'm the first one to let you know you've been nominated for Winemaker of the Year. And I was thrilled. I was driving. I was super thrilled. And at the time, I didn't know, I didn't, I mean, of course, wine enthusiasts, everything, but I, I didn't know the parameters. I, I wasn't sure if it was California, it was Santa Barbara, it was F Street in Lompoc where the winery is. I, I didn't know how, how yeah. fast the category was. And I was happy with anything, you know, it's like any recognition school. Um, and then it, it kind of sunk in that it was, it, you know, the, the really pretty big deal that, that it is. Um, and I was touched. I mean, it was really flattering and I was excited. And, and, I, and I was mostly excited for the region. You know, it's, it's, it's associated with my name, you know, which, which is flattering. And, and you know, I'm, I'm very, um, very grateful and appreciative of that. However, you know, I'm, I'm a product of this place, man. Like I, I've been trained by this place. I've been nurtured by this place. I've been beaten up by this place. <laughs> like I'm, I'm a kid of Santa Rita and of Santa Barbara. I'm a product of this. And so really for me, the award is, it really belongs to the area. You know what I mean? You know, I'm, I'm, a, we're, I'm a steward of it, I guess, but I, it's, really, it's really about the place, you know, and, and I love the recognition and the spotlight that's on Santa Rita right now. It's really- Well, let's, let's talk about the place. I mean, when, you know, listen, when people outside, I'm, I'm from the East Coast, I've been here a long time, but when my friends from the East Coast and, you know, even New York, I mean, when they talk about California wine, they mostly talk about, you're not talking about Northern California. I mean, those, you know, Napa and Sonoma, the crown jewels of, uh, at least in terms of uh, popular uh, perception of California wine. And then you'll even hear about Paso and, you know, but Santa Barbara. Santa Rita Hills is producing, and obviously wine enthusiast agreed, is producing not only some of the best wine in California, but some of the best wine in the world. And especially, I think I, I love Pinot Noir from that region. And would I would it be would it be accurate to say, Greg, that Sanford was kind of the first wine up in that area to put Pinot Noir on the map? For sure, yeah. So Sanford, you know, Richard Sanford in 1970, 71 was Sanford and Benedict. And then Pierre Lafond shortly thereafter with Santa Barbara Winery. And, you know, there was, a, and then, you know, the Babcocks in the early 80s. But those, you know, those decades, the wines were so cool and they were really sought after, like out of the gates. They were, they were gaining traction and recognition. And at the same time, there were only a few hundred acres total, which is really not that much if you think about like a global wine situation. And then, uh, you know, there was a, a, a big kind of turning point chapter in the mid 90s when a lot of things happened, a lot of installations went in, a lot of new things happened then. And that was kind of a, a boom time, if you will. And then, of course, 05 and Sideways, and that was like another kind of booster shot, if you will, kind of getting up into the stratosphere. But it's still a young area. You know, if you think about, yes, it's been 50 years since the sticks went in at Sanford and Benedict. However, you know, like it's, we, it's, it's still not that much. You know what I mean? It's like from like the mid nineties on is really when it starts happening. And we just got the appellation about 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and, and, and you, you started in a wine shop, right? You were working in a wine shop and that's where, that's where you got the bug. Yeah. Tasting room at Santa Barbara Winery. I was 21, barely 21 years old. I didn't know Chardonnay was a grape, um, but I taught French at UCSB. I, I taught there pretty young. And so I could pronounce things. I was kind of like an arrogant frat guy. And I'm like, oh, God, I can speak French. I'm a frat guy. Like, I got this in the bag. And, um, and then I got the job. I, I didn't get the job the first time because someone else knew Chardonnay was a great. Was going for the job born out of a love of wine or you just needed a job? Just needed a job. That was, I didn't need a job. I was stringing tennis rackets. I was making like a grand a month teaching French. 
And I opened up a newspaper for no reason and saw a 5.50 an hour tasting room clerk. And I was like, yeah, that would be awesome. Like drink on the job, wine, wine bar, crackers, classical music, barrels. That's cool. And so I took the job for that, really. And then one day behind the bar, I knew that this would be my life. You know, And that was about 30 years ago. And those vineyards are 10 yards away from some of our vineyards now. So like, I'm really like, I'm here, like I'm a product of this place. When do you discover that you have an aptitude for this? I, you know, one of, one of the, when I drove around the country writing, researching my book, American Wino, one of the great things was meeting winemakers and hearing their story. You know, one, I mean, another very well known winemaker from the U S is Charles Smith. And I remember meeting Charles for the first time and, you know, he was a manager in rock bands and he like toured Denmark and stuff. And same thing as your story reminded me of his. He got a job in a wine shop. He has more hair than I do. He does, a, he, does have, he, does a, he does a lot more hair than you. But yeah, but he he got a job in a wine shop in Seattle and very similar and thought, man, I dig this. And then he said he realized that he had a pal like he he could do it. He could he could identify wine. He said very early on. And then that's when he came up with the business plan to start House Red. But he did, he had never done shit. He hadn't done anything. Yeah. So how was it for you? When did you discover, I have something here. I, I'm able to correctly identify what's going on with wine. I'm able to identify what could what a wine might be missing, what a wine needs, all the things you need to be a great winemaker. When did you start to realize you had that that talent? Well, it's, it's not even about talent, I don't think. It's you know, how The way I was raised was that like you don't have to be the smartest, the best, the brightest. You just have to work the hardest, right? And, and do what you love and apply yourself and give everything you have to that. And so for me, I loved it, right? And so I just, I devoured it. And I would like work around the clock. I would read all I could. I, you know, and I love, I love working. I love monastic work. I love repetitive work. I love cleaning. I like doing things over and over and over which lends itself to wine for sure. And I come from teaching originally, right? And all my family teaches in one way or another. And so that's like our family business. And so it's, it's more like getting into production, but also being very, very comfortable, if not more so in the front of the house, right? And so it's straddling front and back of the house as Charles does, as so many people that you know, I'm sure, have that ap- aptitude. I mean, because then not only can you touch people in different ways, you know, from a kind of exposure sales marketing standpoint, but you're, you're aware of what's going on. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're in the front, you're talking to people, you're like engaging, you're touching them, you're vibing off of that. And so I think it just accelerates the growth. And so, and that's really always been my thing is like this, uh, this octopus tattoo in my arm, you know, it's like these different branches of thought, you know what I mean? And so that's really why, that's how it's worked for me anyway. Well, do you remember the feeling the first time you tried wine that you made? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I do actually. So, but again, it's for me, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit different. Like I really don't see myself making things, you know, it's more Santa Barbara is such an epic place, right? Our weather is ideal. That's why like royalty lives here and Oprah and whatever, you know what I mean? It's, it's dreamy. Our weather is very predictable and it's very cool, which is a weird circumstance. So in 30 years, I've never needed to pick because of bad weather, right? It's like, it's a, it's a joke. And so the fruit is epic. And so we just raise it as cleanly and as minimally and as transparently as we can. And so it's really stewardship, you know, so how things turn out is how they turn out. And it's always exciting. You know, like the first things you're like, Oh my God, that's what happened. Yeah. But I mean, like just that moment, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I remember the first time I had a byline, you know, in a, in a <laughs> magazine or first time I, I pretty much remember all of my first bylines. I remember my first book, 
in that moment, there had to be a, a real sense of, of satisfaction from having come from, you know, you were working in the wine shop and now you just made it. Do you remember how it tasted your first wine? Was it good? It was, yeah, it all worked out. I'm still here. We're still talking there. right now. <laughs> <laughs> Get in my teeth. Beginner's luck, for sure. Could you ever have imagined back then that you'd be here? And I don't mean here on this podcast. I mean here, you know, why, all the accolades and just people love your wine. People are passionate about your wine. They've forged a real connection to this thing that you and your team do. No, it's really, it's really sweet. I mean, there's a lot of adrenaline, you know, especially at the beginning and there always is, you know, it's a vulnerable thing. Like you're, the way we do things is so stripped away. It's so primitive. It's so elementary that it really is like, it's us, you know, it's like, there's no, there's no Photoshop. There's no auto tuning. It's this raw expression of us and place. And so there's exposure there, much like if you're like, you know, giving a speech in third grade or you're singing to a concert full of, you know, people, whatever it is. I mean, it's, it's, there's vulnerability and there's an adrenaline rush with that. And I always feel that and that's exciting. And, and, and the, the people have felt connected to us is, is very, very meaningful, you know, because it just, it, they, they trust us. We trust them. It's special. It's really nourishing. Again, you, you've been an evangelist for that, that region. Have you ever thought about going anywhere else to make wine, even if on a temporary basis? I know I have some winemaker friends that'll, you know, they'll go do a residency over in Bordeaux or they'll go to set, you know, to Australia. Have you ever thought, just let me go see what it's like to make wine somewhere else or that just doesn't even cross your mind? No, it doesn't cross my mind, you know, and I, I love other regions. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's all cool. Russian River, New Zealand, France. I lived in France. I mean, it's cool. Um, and I'm in Santa Barbara, specifically Santa Rita, right? And and there have been times when I've been tempted, brother. I'm not I'm not going to lie. Like there have been times when, you know, our sales have been jamming, and I've had friends up north, and they've said, "Hey, brewer, like I can hook you up with five tons of this killer vineyard." And it could have just been like instant money. You know what I mean? I, I, we could have I could have brought the fruit down and banged it out, and it would have been, you know, successful if you. I mean, you know, the the economics of it. And, and I always slept on it. You know what I mean? It's, it's like a one night stand kind of thing. And, you know, you get all hot and bothered and you're flattered. You think, oh my God, that'd be awesome. Yeah, cool. Like, let's go out. And then I always slept on it, thank goodness. And then the next day I would politely decline because like, who, who am I to do that? Like, I don't need to like conquer that. You know what I mean? Like someone up there should have access to that. Like that's theirs. And I'm, this is my little sandbox. And I love sharing what we have. That's cool. I'm not defensive that way. But for me, I think when you... You espouse yourself to someone or to a vocation or a place. You really get intimate with that place. You know, you kind of get in sync with that place. You trust that place. You don't want to cheat on Santa Barbara is what you're saying. Right. <laughs> and, and the value of the relationship increases. You know, I mean, Russian River Pinot and Fred is epic. Sonoma Coast is epic. Oregon's epic. I mean, I mean it's, it's not about like, we're the best. It has nothing to do with that. It's simply like, I put a ring on it here. I've espoused myself here. And so the value of of Santa Rita to me and hopefully me to Santa Rita is enhanced because of that commitment. Let me, let me ask you that. You, you touched on something interesting about the, the various places where Pinot Noir, just here, you know, in the States, and this doesn't have to be a definitive thing. No one's going to hold, hold your feet to the fire on this, but what would you say the difference would be between if just on a broad sense, Pinot Noir from, from the Santa Rita Hills versus Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Is there, is there something that you could say is a definitely a, a distinction between those two regions? Quite a bit. Yeah. You know, and, and Oregon, Oregon is, is a, 
I don't want to say evolved, but changed so much over time, you know, from, from 25 years ago and some colder rainy vintages and whatnot, you know, and compared to some of the Oregon wines in the past five or 10 years, it's kind of, there's like the whole, you know, it's a whole different situation and not like one's better or the other, but it's just different. Yeah. The thing about Santa Rita is that our season is so long. Our season's like eternally long. And so uh, because it's so cool and steady because of the Pacific right there that we're breathing in every day. And so, um, and so for us, there's something very carnal. There's something very savage about the wines, the Pinot down here for me. There's something very like unbridled, much like an ocean, like the ocean that's right there. There's something kind of th- like threatening about it. And I love, I love that kind of savage intensity that I think our Pinots have. There's like a, a brambly wild berry bush. There is certainly that, but I got to tell you, this Machado, the 2016 Machado that I'm drinking right now is... And, you know, it's a term that is just so overused, but I have to say it's one of the ones that's jumping out of me. It's just, it's very well-balanced wine. There's a a zing to it, but then there's also a softness to it. How do you achieve that? Yeah. (laughs) How do you pull that off? Well, yeah, (laughs) smoke and mirrors. No, wine's all about equilibrium, yeah? It's like a teeter-totter. And so Santa Rita Pinot, you know, from our state vineyards, the clones we have, farming we do, whatever, the, the Pinot in Santa Rita Hills has a tendency to be very dark and lush and sexy and curvy. I'm sure you've had a bunch that are like sure, darker yeah. than that, like sexy and whatever. And that's great. Very cuddly, warm, yummy. So you're starting with this round ball of like crazy intensity. And then for us, we ferment predominantly as whole clusters. So that Machado is 100% fermented as whole clusters. And stems for us are like a corset, right? So that the fruit is like this beautifully curvy body corseted by those stems or the way like you sear a soft protein, like a scallop or something. You're not cooking the scallop, you're barely warming the scallop, but you're propping it up, aren't you? Like it's not quite as like limp, it kind of gets firmer yes. with the sear. So that's that's the juxtaposition with the stems because we, we don't work with any new barrels. Our barrels are like 20 years old. So all the architecture is derived from those stems. It's kind of like when you go to a sushi bar, you know, and, and when the chef, you know, not dunking the stuff, not dunking the fish in soy sauce, but when the chef brushes gently the soy over the fish, same thing, right? The fish is kind of fatty and round. The soy defines it and renders it more savory. Yeah. And so that's what this. You you mentioned that the region is still so young and I I've seen a big difference even just in the past few years, because it wasn't that long ago that, that Santa Barbara, that whole region up there really felt like the wild West. And you had some real characters, uh, you know, when we talk about Sanford, you know, Bruno and then Chris Curran. <laughs> and uh, I remember going up and, uh, you know, I'll drop this name. I'm friends with uh, with Kurt Russell and Kurt oh. makes his wine up there at uh, Ampelos, right, right. with uh-huh. Peter Work. And, and everything was really what I imagine it must have been like in Sonoma County and Napa back in the 70s. Is that is that still the case? Would you still say that you guys are, you know, you know even with the success of Sideways and all these... Do you think the region has still maintained its purity, so to speak? It's, yeah, inno- it's, it's innocence. Has. It's innocence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it totally has. And I, I think maybe in the next, like, certainly in the next generation, but maybe even in the next decade or so, we might see something of a tipping point in that regard. You know, and, and the reason why I say that is multifold, that the real pioneers, I'm kind of second generation, right? I came in in 91. So I'm old. I'm plenty old. But there's like what I love about the area now is the people that truly built it from scratch, Richard, Bruno, Babcock, Clendenin, Bob Lindquist, Adam Tolmack. I mean, like the old Rick Longoria, like the people in the seventies, right? In early eighties, they're still in the game. 
I mean, they're still active and in it, Fred Brander. I mean, they're all still here. And I think that really helps to ground the area in that kind of familial bootstrappy, like, let's figure it out, you know, let's be together and kind of, you know, just carve our own path. At the same time now, you know, obviously a lot of things have blossomed and developed and we've got, you know, there's more corporate interest coming in. There's foreign investment happening. You know, the, the scale has gone up tenfold from 400 to probably 4,000 acres now in the Appalachian, which is all healthy and awesome. And it, it's part of like a growing community. Um, but with that growth and with the diversity, you know, some of that might be lessened to touch. You know what I mean? That kind of maverick, crazy, let's figure it out. But there's still that pulse. And you're always going to have people that are going to be very resistant to that. I mean, I, I when I talk about, I mean, I remember vividly being in Willamette and there was a whole lot of that going on where the big guys were coming in. I think the big demon up there was Gallo, you know, and it was like, ah, they're, they're buying up everything. And then uh, a couple of the Bordeaux, uh, Drouin uh, bought, uh, so, you know, French producers were coming in and people got upset about it. But from a wine consumer perspective, it does raise the bar when you're bringing in Druine and places like they can't help, but raise the game of people like, not that your game needs raising, but I'm saying, you know, people like yourself that have been there a long time. It always needs raising and we can always do better. And, and the more, no doubt, man, like the, the more diversity that comes in, the better it's all about roots to market roots to people's awareness. You know what I mean? And so if, and, and you also, it's like a, it's a third party endorsement. So yeah, I can go bang my chest and talk about how awesome Santa Rita is. And I, I do, and I happily do that. And when others come from the outside and they plant their own flags and they throw their own kind of, you know, commitment to it, then it just, it helps to buoy up, you know, the, the confidence that, that kind of everyone has around the world. Right. And that's, that's super exciting. And that's happening here. It's happening even more so in Oregon than even the Druin era. They were one of the first, as you referenced. And then down here too. I mean, there are a handful of, of French, you know, Burgundy producers and Champagne producers that are coming sure. To the Washington yeah. State seeing a lot of that as well. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's, it's very healthy. I think it's awesome. Yeah. One, you know, one of the things that's special to me always about that region is I, I didn't know shit about wine. You know, back in the day, I I always kind of credit my my. I guess my first aha moment actually was uh, with uh, Pierre Ceylon from uh, Verite. Uh-huh. Which is a good one to start with, by the way. You know, for those of you that don't know, Verite is Pierre's a legendary winemaker. For, works with Kendall Jackson, and and he makes Verite out of Sonoma County, which is a perennial one hundred point wine. If you put stock in that, but it is a very very exceptional wine. And then he also makes wine over in Saint Emilion and in Italy as well. But I didn't know anything about wine, and he came down to. Uh, down here and I got invited by a publicist to have lunch with him and his wife Monique at the Viceroy in Santa Monica and he brought you know he brought these all these this just array of again if, if you're in these are 100 point Parker wines which isn't the easiest thing to get but and I that was kind of you know I'd gone from drinking Boone's Farm you know to let me try yeah oh, here and and he started talking to me and it was the moment. I I will always date back to that was the day I fell in love with wine. And then what I was getting to with Santa Barbara was I, I went up there, you know, kind of because I had the allure of, I wanted to see some of the sideways places. I remember like Foxen and places like that that are just kind of out there. And not only did I fall in love with the wines themselves, the liquid, but it was the whole vibe of the place. And I think that's the thing that you kind of 
not only represent, but also celebrate as much as anybody that, that it's a special place. Oh my God, a million percent. And, and that wine does that, you know, and talking about Pierre Sayon, like he's, he's such a hero. Like I want to be him when I grow up, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> Pierre Sayon, like Christian Moreau and Chablis, like that, that era of French producer that like is jovial and cool and open and excited. Like I have such a crush on that man. I mean, he's amazing. Right. And so, and, and for me, you know, you mentioned Bruno earlier. Bruno's like a big brother to me. Like Bruno, like he was, he always had my back. Bruno, like 20- everybody knows Bruno was a winemaker. What's Bruno's last name? Uh, Alfonso. Yeah. Was the winemaker at Sanford really kind of in the hay, in the real beginning of the for, heyday for the first, first 25 years. Yeah. yeah and, and he is uh, a, uh, I think he'd be okay with me saying he's a character. <laughs> yeah. That's gentle. I'm putting that, ni- putting it nicely. He's a character. Uh, I've had yeah, a couple so of many- great. Yeah, then there's so many characters in this business, right? And and everyone's so kind and into it and intense and like their own person, you know? And so it's so easy to fall in love with that, you know, and to be inspired by that and to kind of wanna wanna be connected to that. And so, you know, I certainly had that all around me. And and you know, now at this stage of my career, I mean, I've always wanted to do this, but it's becoming increasingly important that, you know, at this stage, I, I keep that sentiment like alive and well you know what i mean and, and I, I remain as inclusive as possible of everybody around me um kind of inspiring leadership and whatever you know what i mean because it's like it's yeah that it's my time to do that you know what i mean it's been 30 years i'm not going anywhere but like i you know i was gonna I'm, say am I'm we, we getting a retirement announcement here at the moment <laughs> no, breaking never. news breaking news on what we're never. drinking how much never. what do you do volume wise greg a year it kind of depends. So under Brewer Clifton, uh, it hovers around six to 7,000 cases, probably total. Most of which is the two Santa Rita Hills wines, which are the primary ones, the Chardonnay and Pinot. And then the de- designate wines like you have before you, they're usually a couple hundred cases each, you know, a couple of Chardonnays, three or four Pinots. So all in is about seven to 8,000. And then we do Diatom as our sister label. Um, and that's about 4,000 more or less. Um, so yeah, how I mean, much of that? How much of that is wine club and versus restaurant? Well, I mean, restaurant not now anymore. But yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of, it's varied over time, you know, because of the art, the dynamics of our mailing list from like the Parker era of the early two thousands compared to now. And as we got bigger, you know, the metrics changed a little. Um, but it's it's a little bit of all, right? I've always loved keeping things as diverse as possible. Like I mentioned, roots to market before. So our mailing list is quite strong. Our tasting room is solid you know, direct out of the winery and then of course, wholesale. And, um, and, and it's kind of a sliding scale, you know what I mean? Because you, there needs to be elasticity with that as we've seen this year. Absolutely. Now I got to ask you what, what's up with the wax, man? <laughs> Again, I mentioned, I mentioned Kurt and he was doing that with his wines as well. Gogi. And I would say to him, I go, it's uh, it's hard to open. Well, tell me, tell me what, what's yeah. the thinking behind the way I, I, it, it's not put it this way. I would, I would tell everybody out there, do not let that, do not let that, uh, prevent you from picking up a bottle of Brewer Clifton wine. That would be a mistake. I'm just saying when I see the bottle, it's, it's so cool looking. And then my, that's my first thought. And then my next thought is fuck, I have to fucking get this wax off. And sometimes it comes off easy, but then there's some where they don't. What's your right. thinking? Why, why, why did you do this to me, Greg? So we've always done it. So, so Brewer Clifton is, is really reliant upon discipline and ritual and being very, very steadfast and never wavering from the course that we kind of set off. Okay. In and so we've always done it. So that's part of it. You know, for the, the, the bigger production wines that we do, the Santa Rita wines, they're capsuled, you know, because I, 
a it, it becomes just crazy to wax that much first of all but then you know seeing those wines you know by the glass or servers you know it just it make it's appropriate for the designate wines you know we've held true to waxing and and you know a i think it looks sexy b you know when we were starting off we were like you know swinging for the bleachers really and so i saw the wines from like raveno and levois and those baller producers in europe i'm like oh what they wax so that must be like the thing to do you know what i mean so that was part of it over the course of the past 25 years it's become even more important to me it's it's a question of like respect for you respect for us the vineyard i love that no two bottles are the same right? yeah so they're all beautiful they're consistent aesthetically they're very pleasing they've all been dipped in a tiny little sauce pot by hand right and so I love in this day and age where so much is homogenous and kind of banged out and duplicated with the click of a phone, right? Like that bottle's been handled that way. Like, you know, that dip that you have on your desk right now, that's the only one of its kind, right? And, and for me, it's a question of time and care invested in you and, and pride of the Machado family and the Machado ranch. And so that's why we do it. And, and also I love what you said about the tradition too. I mean, last week on the show, we were drinking El Tesoro tequila, which they're still making with a uh, Tahona wheel, you know, and not a lot of, not a lot of Tahona wheels, a big giant wheel that they stone wheel. It was from the old days that a donkey used to pull it around and, and not many tequila producers still do that, but it, it makes a difference. It's a lot more expensive. It doesn't, it's not nearly as quick, but they stick with it because that's the, the Carlos Camarena, the, the, the uh, tequila arrow, his family has always done it that way. And that's what he says is that's, that's the way my dad did it. My grandfather did it. And that's the way I'm going to do it. And there's something cool about that. There's something very, very cool about that. There's you know, something think, extremely cool. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's one of the reasons why we use the same barrels, you know, like that wine that you have before you has held, has held our Pinot Noir since the late nineties. Amazing. Right? So, and that's, there's something beautiful about the resonance in that. It's like a, it's like a musician, right? You could, you know, let's say you're a prominent musician. You can have a new guitar every show. You can have a new guitar every song. If you called Fender and said, Hey, I want a new guitar every song. They'd be like, yeah, sure. Right on all day. Here you go. Or you could be like, you know what? I want to play the guitar that I bought in high school because I saved up money washing the neighbor's cars and it goes out of tune and the pickup doesn't really work and the strap falls off. But like, I have a connection with that instrument. I have a connection with that discipline. And that is very, very meaningful to me. And that that's embedded in everything that we do at work. Well, that, that's a, uh, a beautiful philosophy to have. And it, it certainly shows in the glass. What's a bottle of this go for the 2016 Machado? Gen, roughly, what's? Yeah, the Machado is eighty dollars retail, and then the, the primary Santa Rita wine is forty. Gotcha. Yeah, and and there's no, you know, there's no. While the, the Machado is more singular and it's a more finite production, there's no bias or prejudice with the way we handle all of our vineyards. They're all raised the exact same in a very need blind, equal opportunity way. It's like a YMCA sport, like everyone's quarterback, you know, on our team kind of thing. And so the Santa Rita is by far a declassification. It's simply a more broad expression of our entire estate, right? It's all in there. It's like an orchestra as compared to a solo or duet, which is what you have. Um, and so it's the, the Santa Rita is all full tilt Brewer Clifton. And because we make a little bit more of it, you know, the, the price can be a bit more reachable. It's an amazing wine. You're an amazing winemaker. You have, uh, you know, wine, wine enthusiasts may have uh, given you the title winemaker of the year, but I'm going to give you ready, ready. I'm going to, we're going to give you a, what, what we're drinking with Dan Dunn title. You are now the all being master of time, space and dimension and wine. There you go. <laughs> 
put that you can put that in the press material. Feel free to use it. I've 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 dubbed you that. Uh, Greg Brewer, man, this has been so cool. And hearing your philosophy of making wine, and hearing how you're doing it, your love for it, and the love for the place where you do it, I invite everybody to check out and get Brewer Clifton. Where can they find you on the social media? So it's BrewerClifton.com, um, Greg Brewer Wines, Diatom Wines. I'm just, I couldn't be easier to find. My cell phone's everywhere, personal email, drunk text me from restaurant. I mean, anything. I'm going to be doing that later. I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to post some video on uh, at WWD underscore podcast. You can check out Greg talking about it. Greg, thank you, man, for spending time with us. Sure. And you're welcome back on the show anytime. And I, I can't wait for this thing to be over because you're two hours away and as soon as it is man me and lisa and alex our mutual friends are coming up the coast and we are going to do some serious wine drinking together i can't wait i can't wait to host you all it'd be awesome thank you man right on thank you dan and now a word from one of our dream sponsors harvey's bristol cream circa 1979 david would you like to come over for a drink tonight kate I can't believe I wrote that. I'm glad you did. Until recently, I'd never have invited a man over for a drink. It wasn't considered respectable. But this is now. And when you're serving Harvey's Bristol Cream, it's more than respectable. It's downright upright. Harvey's Bristol Cream. Say, David, are you free Tuesday? I probably know more about drinking than you do, but at the same time, I don't mind hanging out with you. You know, you can call me up. I'm Dan Dunn. I drink for a living. I'm going to be hanging out at bars and events all over the world talking about one of the coolest things in the world. Dan Dunn's happy hour. Hi, this is Kurt Russell. Listen, I escaped from New York, but I couldn't get the hell out of Dan Dunn's happy hour. Please send help. You know, folks, a lot of ink and hot air has been spilled over the act of pairing. That is, combining food and drink effectively create a taste It's greater than the sum of its parts. What no one ever seems to talk about, however, is that you can add good wine to shitty white trash meals to make them not only slide down your gullet more quickly, get you a little buzzed, so forget about the fact that you're eating craft dinner for the third time this week. Which is to say, this is my attempt to reconcile my past with my present. Bon appetit, motherfuckers. First up, pairings. We got a fried bologna sandwich with Gloria Ferrer Carnera Chardonnay. The intensely unctuous bologna calls for a well-rounded wine that strikes a delicate balance between fragility and belligerence. Don't forget to add mustard. Next, we've got a bucket of KFC original recipe with Geyser Peak Sauvignon Blanc. Because the Colonel's fried chicken begs for a wine with bright acidity and herbaceous flavors to temper the spontaneous coronary artery dissection you just suffered. How about a little hamburger helper? with Conundrum California Red. Why do they call it Hamburger Helper when we know it's the pasta getting the help? It's quite the conundrum. See where I'm going with this? And finally, Chef Boyardee Beefaroni with Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill. Because hell, if you're going to surrender, you might as well surrender completely. And that's going to do it for this episode. I want to thank Greg Brewer for joining us. I want to thank our new Southern correspondent, Ashley McHugh, for joining us. And of course, I want to thank you, for being here next episode we've got hamburger expert george moats joining us and if you love burgers and you love drinking it's the place to be so we'll see you then bye all